Matthew chapter 2, we're going to start this morning in verse 13, but I, I just want to remind you uh, of where we're at. Uh, you'll, re- you'll recall that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, that uh, Jesus was paid a visit by some very important guests who came and laid some uh, gifts at his feet and worshipped him, and those were known as the wise men or the magi. And we saw how they came and how they fell down and how they, they worshipped him and, and how they were led there by the providence of God. They were led there by the star and, and how God had directed them to uh, his path. And you also recall that before they uh, went and found Jesus that they stopped over in Jerusalem and they had talked to the king of the Jews. They had talked to King Herod and said, where is this Messiah born? Where is this king, this brand new baby king that's been born? And, and Herod, the king of the Jews, was kind of disturbed by this. And he said, uh, we don't, there hasn't been a king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews, uh, one born. And, and anyway, they directed them to Bethlehem. And you'll recall that Herod lied to them and, and said, when, when you find him, come back and, and tell me where he's at because I want to go and worship him. Of course, we know that that was a lie, and the angels had been warned in a dream, or the Magi had been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and to go back another way. And so we pick up that story here in verse 13 this morning, and it reads Now, when they, that's the Magi, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, he shall be called Nazarene. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that as we spend time in it this morning that you would help us to see what it is you want us to see, to hear what it is you want us to hear, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to live as your people. God, you've called us out of the world. You've called us out by name. You've called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Lord, you've placed us uh, in the kingdom 
of your precious son, Jesus. I pray that you would help us through our time in your word to live as citizens, not of the world, but citizens of the kingdom of God, bringing you glory, shining your light, lifting you up, that you would draw all men and all mankind into yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, there's a couple of really interesting threads that weave throughout uh, this passage here today, and uh, I'm going to do my best to pull on as many as we can with the time that we have. Uh, but the first, and they all lead to, to really interesting places, but the, the first I want to pull on, the first thread is this thread of fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Three times here in this passage, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, says that what Jesus did, his, his early life, his, his personal history, that it fulfills prophecy. We see that word used three times and then three prophetic words quoted. And here Matthew's explaining how Jesus' personal history repeats, echoes, if you will, certain aspects of Israel's national history that we read about in the Old Testament. The first, he says, and he quotes from the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that out of Egypt I have called my son. Hosea was talking about how God had delivered his people out of Egypt, how they had been enslaved in Egypt, and just how God brought uh, his son, Israel, the people of Israel, out of Egypt. So now God is bringing Jesus out of Egypt, the son of God. And then he quotes from uh, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. And here he's talking about the story when the children of Israel, because they had rejected God, because they had uh, practiced idolatry, though God had called them to himself and drawn them to himself, and, and though God had sent many messengers who warned them, the people of Israel rejected their God. And so in, in the book of Jeremiah, we read about how that God disciplined his people and how he sent the uh, armies of King Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon to go and to destroy that city, Jerusalem, because they had forsaken him. And this prophecy here that, that he's quoting from is, is when that had happened, the mothers of Israel had cried for their children that had been lost in the siege of Jerusalem. And here again, now when the Messiah comes into the world, once again, once again, the mothers of Israel weep for their children because they have been destroyed. And Matthew is saying that these, these events in Jesus' life are, are the ultimate fulfillment of what had been spoken by the prophets. And then the, finally, there's a third one here at the very end. And this third one, it says that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this one, there, there's no Old Testament prophetic verse that, that we can find that Matthew is quoting from directly. Uh, theologians and Bible students have, have looked, and there's, there's nothing in there that, that this directly quotes. And so there's been several attempts, uh, several ideas put forward about what Matthew is actually saying here. But I believe that what, what he is saying, though he's not quoting a specific Old Testament prophet, there is a, a general prophetic theme through the Old Testament prophets that I believe Matthew is, is pointing towards in this passage and specifically 
with this verse here, and he's saying that Jesus will fulfill it, and he fulfills it by being called a Nazarene, being someone who grew up in Nazareth being called a Nazarene. And so if, keep your place here in Matthew, but flip over with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I, I want to help you see what, what Matthew is, is talking about here, because we don't live in the day of Jesus. We, we don't live in this time, and we didn't grow up around the Sea of Galilee and, and in first century Jerusalem and Israel, and so some of the cultural things are a little bit lost on us. But here in John chapter 1, we get a little bit of the idea of what Matthew is going for. And if we look at verse 45, this is after Jesus has been baptized, he begins to call some of his disciples. He begins to call them by name. He asks them to follow him, or not ask them, he tells them to follow him. One of the ones he calls is Philip, and in verse 44 it tells us that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. In verse 45 it tells us that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. So the Messiah, the, the Christ, the, the one we've been waiting for, the deliverer, the savior, the, the one that Moses wrote about, the one that all the prophets wrote about, we have found him. That's incredible news. That's quite a claim. And he goes on to say, we have found him, and here's his name. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then Nathaniel in verse 46 says to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The, the, Nazareth was this little tiny, out-of-the-way, what my dad would call podunk. I don't know what podunk means, but it was never good. Uh, minuscule, barely a blip on the radar, tiny little place. It's the backwoods. It's the backwaters. It's, you know, where everyone has a beard down to here and they wrestle alligators for fun kind of thing. You understand what I'm talking about here? Where people wear cut-off overalls and, you know, walk around barefoot and, you know, have two teeth. That kind of situation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's just, as my mom would say, trailer trash. Okay, it's just, and hey, you know, sorry, but, but these are the phrases that we use to describe a certain kind of people that we don't like. Right? Am I, am, am I the only one that grew up from a family where people said stuff like that? Give me a break. Some of you called some people in front of you that this morning on the way here. You self-righteous people. This was the feeling about Nazareth in Jesus' day. Right or wrong, it was viewed as a, a not a prestigious place, not some, you know, some sort of happening place where we would expect the Messiah to come from. It's some tiny little place. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile or no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. So Nathanael, he's convinced very quickly that Jesus is the Messiah by the word that Jesus spoke to him. But here we see in Nathanael's response the, the, the temperament, the, the feeling towards those who lived and came out of Nazareth. If, if you flip forward a, a few more pages in your Bible to Acts chapter 24, Acts chapter 24 has Paul now, of course this is after the, the death, burial, resurrection and ascension of, of Jesus, his spirit's been poured out, the church is moving forward in power and in victory, turning the world upside down for Jesus. Paul has been put on trial, and in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, the accusation that comes against Paul is that we have found this man, Acts 24, 5, we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. So so here now, Christians are being associated with this pejorative thought, this pejorative term of the Nazarene, those that come from Nazareth, uh, that it's it's not looked highly upon, it's not prestigious, it's despised. Even the demons refer to Jesus Uh, Throughout the Gospels, the demons will refer to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. It's kind of a put-down every time it's used that way. And when Matthew says that the Messiah, the Christ, that that fulfills the prophetic scripture that that Jesus would be called the Nazarene, I believe it's speaking directly to what we see in Isaiah chapter 53, if you want to flip back there with me quickly to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, this prophetic scripture of the Christ and who the Christ would be and what the Christ would be like. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he is despised and we esteemed him not. John chapter 1 verse 11, it says Jesus came to his own and to his own people and his own people did not receive him. So as we go now back to Matthew chapter 3, this is what I believe Matthew is saying as he's he's talking about This idea that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, that he would be despised, that he would be rejected. He would not be received with open arms. He would not be heralded as the the king. In fact, he is being rejected by his own people. And this leads us into another thread. And as we begin to pull on it, you'll see how it develops. But... 
there's a theme of hostility that runs all the way through not just Matthew's gospel, but all the gospels. This, this hostility between Jesus and the establishment in Jerusalem, between Jesus and the religious leaders and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. There's this hostility, there's this conflict that begins to bubble over to the surface. And of course, we, we know how the conflict ends. We, we know where this road leads to. We, we know where it finishes. It ends with Jesus hanging on a cross. This, this conflict is real. This conflict is, is vicious. This conflict is out to destroy Christ, out to destroy their king. But this is not something, and Matthew's drawing this out for us, this is not something that develops later in Jesus' life. This isn't something that comes after he's a teenager or after he's an adult. This isn't something that shows up after he was baptized and begins to do his ministry. No, this conflict starts right at the beginning. It's right here as he's still in the cradle. As it says that they are trying to destroy him. They're trying to destroy him. You see this here where, where, where the angel tells Joseph in a dream, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there till I tell you for Herod is about to search for this child to, quote, destroy him. Destroy him. Now I want to show you something. It, it's really unique if you're back in Matthew's gospel, flip with me just a few pages forward to Matthew 27. This word destroy is, is very important for, for Matthew and the message that he's communicating. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 is Jesus on trial before Pilate. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees have already, and the high priest and the whole Sanhedrin council have already put Jesus on trial and have now handed him over to Pilate to, to try to get Pilate, the Roman governor, to crucify Jesus. Verse 20 says, now the chief priests, Matthew 27, 20, the chief priests, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and, what's the word? Destroy Jesus. Matthew only uses this word two times in his whole writing of the gospel. And when he uses this word in, in chapter 27 as the chief priests and, and the scribes and, and the elders of the people... The, those who should have recognized the Messiah, should have recognized the Christ, who should have welcomed him with open arms as, as the one that the law and the prophets predicted and pointed to. They should have received him. They should have celebrated him. But instead, they're trying to convince the crowd to ask for a murderer so that Jesus, the, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God could be destroyed. And as Matthew uses this word here right in the middle of the passion narrative, it's to remind us that this is not a, a new thing that they're just now starting to try to do. 
He's telling us, no, this started some 30 years earlier. This is what the, this spirit that has infiltrated and, 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 and permeated, quote unquote, God's people has been trying to do since Jesus was an infant. And this sets up this theme of hostility between Herod and, and, and Jesus and, and the Jewish leadership and, and Jesus. Now, Herod was a very evil man, a very wicked man. He was installed by Rome as the king of the Jews. He had no rightful uh, lineage to sit on that throne. He, he wasn't a descendant of Jacob. He was a descendant of Esau. Herod was ruthless. History tells us that he had ten wives, two of whom he murdered. And one of the wives he murdered was his favorite, according to his own word. What a man to be married to, ladies. You thought your husband was a tyrant. No, no, no. He murdered in cold blood three of his own children because he was worried about them taking his throne. He was such a despicable person that as, as he became ill and he saw his own death approaching, he issued orders that the leading men of the Jewish people should all be executed upon his death. And he did this to ensure that when he died that there would be people mourning in the streets instead of celebrating. He knew he was so despised that when he died that people would be throwing a party that he issued an order that upon my death I want all the leading men of the Jewish people to be murdered so there will be mourning when I die. Thankfully, his orders were not carried out. We see Joseph and, and Mary and Jesus escape in the night to Egypt and when the wise men don't go back to Herod, but go back another way, Herod becomes furious. We see that in verse 16. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under. Now, Bethlehem was not a large place. It was a very small town. And so the estimates on how many boys two years and, and under would, would be there, I've, I've seen anywhere between 10 and 30 baby boys that were murdered simply because this man Herod was tricked by some wise men, this incredible act of cruelty. Herod, of course, again, he is the king of the Jews in Jerusalem. He is the king that sits on that throne. And when he issues this order, we see no protest. We see no prophet go to him like John the Baptist would later go to one of his sons and declare that what he did was unlawful, we, we see nothing like that. In fact, what we see is that the, the, the people that he had consulted with, the, the chief priests, the, the scribes, 
the ones he had consulted with to find out where the, the baby would be born, where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem earlier in the chapter, we see that they are silent. There's no protest given. And the reason why is because Herod is their guy. Because he, Herod, is building them a new temple. He's building them a new temple. It's, it's the biggest, it's the grandest, it'll even surpass Solomon's temple in its footprint. And so they can't speak out against him because he's doing them a favor. They're in bed with him. God's people, the, the ones who should be leading in righteousness and in holiness, have become just as corrupt as the world's system. And this is what Matthew is saying to us. That once again, just like in the days when, when God used uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon to bring justice on the city that had rejected him, once again, Jerusalem has become corrupt. Once again, Jerusalem has rejected its God. Once again, Jerusalem has turned to not physical idolatry, but political idolatry. Worshiping not the true and living God, but bowing the knee to the kingdom of the world. And listen, there's always going to be hostility between Christ and the world. There's always going to be hostility between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world. And here we see at the very beginning, Jesus can't even walk yet. Jesus can, is, is not even saying goo goo gaga, and the world is trying to destroy his kingdom. There's always going to be hostility to be, between the world and the, the kingdom of Christ, and the sad reality, the sad fact, is that at this point in history, Jerusalem, the city of God, is not part of the kingdom of God, but part of the kingdom of the world. And we see this play out all throughout Matthew's gospel that ultimately culminates when Pilate says, do you want me to kill your king? When Jesus is on trial and, and Pilate says, how can I kill him? He's, he's your king. And what do the people, the crowds, the Jewish leaders, what do they cry out? We have no king but Caesar. They're corrupt. They are not part of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of the world. And the world, hear me in this, the world will do anything to be rid of Jesus. The kingdom of the world is violently opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Jerusalem is not receptive to their Messiah because they do not serve the one that sent the Messiah. Jerusalem, the, the temple, this was the place where God's spirit was to dwell, but now it's become infiltrated with the spirit of the Antichrist, overrun with the kingdom of the world. And I just have to wonder, I just have to wonder if this has happened to the church in America today the place where God's spirit is now to dwell in the church, has it become over, 
run with the kingdom of the world? Have we allowed ourselves to be led astray? Have we allowed ourselves to to sometimes even get in bed with those who, who make political promises to us? The signs are everywhere that the church has become overrun with the kingdom of the world. There was a report released just a few days ago that I saw that, that, that talked about the, the beliefs of Christians in America today. The, the, the vast majority of those who claim the name of Christ do not hold to even the most fundamental and basic teachings and doctrines of Scripture. This isn't a shock to anyone in here. I mean, we live in this, we live in this world. We know and, and love many people who call themselves Christians but really want nothing to do with Christ and his kingdom. They do not submit to Christ. They do not follow Christ. They do not read his word. They do not participate in his church. The signs, again, are everywhere that the church in America looks a lot like Jerusalem here in the first century. You can drive through our city and see the rainbow flag flying outside churches. You can attend Sunday school. It's taught by a drag queen. The the gospel of Christ that says, take up your cross and follow me has been replaced with a feel-good gospel, a message just meant to people make people feel good and feel comfortable. At times, even faithful Bible-believing Christians have become enamored with political power by promises that were made. Listen, we don't We don't follow politicians. We follow a king. His name is Christ. His name is Christ. In a a few months, the 2024 presidential election is going to kick off. It's going to kick off in November. And we, as God's people, got to remember our agenda is the kingdom of God. We need to be wise and discerning. We need to be more focused on what's happening in our house and not so focused on what's happening in the White House. Listen, the devil is coming in and destroying our families. He's using media and social media and smartphones to to kidnap our kids. And we're so preoccupied with what's happening in the White House, we don't know what's happening in the bedroom next to us. 
We're more preoccupied with what's happening in the White House than what's happening in God's house. It's the kingdom of God that we're to be a part of. It's the kingdom of God that we should be pursuing. I, I believe Christians should exercise their right to vote. I'm not telling you not to do that. But I'm, what I am telling you is don't let the next two years of your life be dominated by a political party, by a political season. Show up in November, cast your ballot, vote biblical values, vote the word of God. But then walk out and get about seeking first the kingdom of God. Walk out and get about praying and evangelizing and worshiping the king of kings. It's going to happen. It's going to be worse than 2020. It, it, it's, it's going to try to take over your life. And the greatest tragedy that could happen, God's going to put the person in the White House he wants to put in the White House. That's not the tragedy. The, the, the tragedy is for the church to become preoccupied with trying to elect a human being and lose their sight on serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for the next two years. A distracted church is, is just as uh, uh, what's the word? Ineffective, that's a good word. I was looking for uh, another word with I. Um, I can't think of it. A distracted church is just as ineffective as an asleep church. Listen, we got to keep our eyes on the kingdom of God. We've got to keep our eyes on, on raising our kids to love and serve Christ. We've got to keep our eyes on, 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 on witnessing to, to, to our neighbors and witnessing to our friends and, and not to try to evangelize for a political party, but to try to evangelize for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because I, I, I know I'm really getting offensive today, but the, the, there is no man who can make America great again or, or even great period the only thing that will make america or any country great is if their hearts turn back to the king of kings and the lord of lords and amen and that's that's not going to happen through a political process it's going to happen through the church of jesus being the salt and light that he's called us to be amen so the signs are everywhere that the kingdom of the world is infiltrating the church. You know, when I was a kid, we heard all kinds of messages on worldliness. Remember those? The, the, the world is infiltrating the church. Worldly thoughts, worldly attitudes, worldly values. We don't hear a whole lot of messages like that anymore, do we? The, the thinking, the values of the world infiltrating the church. Those in the kingdom of the world will inevitably want to destroy Christ and his church. We could see this happening in, the, in churches today as churches reject the Jesus of the Bible, reject the Jesus that say he came to bring a sword, reject the Jesus that says take up your cross and follow me. And the 
so-called church is one that's forming Christ in their own image and thereby destroying him, Make, emptying him and emptying the gospel of its power. And we who follow Christ, we need to realize that we will likewise be rejected by the world. If you, if you take a stand for Jesus, there's going to be people who don't appreciate that. We need to come to terms with this. We need to come to grips with this. This is reality. This is what Jesus said. He said, a disciple's not above his teacher. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. We can't cling to this hope that, that we're going to be accepted by the ways of the world, the people of the world. It's just not going to happen. Just as Jesus was despised as the Nazarene, we too will be despised as the people who follow the Nazarene. And we just need to accept it. We just need to come to terms with it. Taking a stand for Christ, it may cost you something. It may cost you your job. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you friendships. It may cost you family. Taking a stand for Christ may cost you Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow him. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, that he will deny us in front of his father. Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me. And hear me in this, Christian, when we stay silent, we are effectually denying our Lord when we stay silent, when we see lies and deceit, when we see injustice, when we refuse to speak what the Word of God says, we are essentially denying the Lord, who has called us to be what? Salt and light. Guess what a light does? It shines. We used to sing the song, hide it under a bushel. I'm going to let it shine. If we do not speak the truth, we are essentially hiding our light, denying our Lord. And we may at times be despised. We may at times also rescue people from the pit of hell. But it's not going to happen if we stay silent. Finally, one last little thread I want to pull on today is Joseph's immediate obedience. His immediate obedience. The angel appears to him in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He didn't wait till sunrise. He, he woke up for the dream, said, Pack your bags. We are out of here. This immediate obedience. And three times we see through this passage where Joseph is directed by the Lord and immediately he responds. There's no delay. There's no deliberating. There's no, well, if we leave, uh, by, you know, if we leave after breakfast, we'll miss the traffic. Right? It's, it's immediate response. And I just have to wonder how many times do we, like Joseph... Receive direction from the Lord, receive conviction in our spirit from Him, but we delay in our obedience. Amen. You know what you call delayed obedience? Yeah. 
disobedience. If the Lord has directed you and you have not obeyed, you are living in disobedience. And so Joseph is not one to walk in disobedience. And so by night he leaves. It's inconvenient. It's not his plan. He does, you know, to, to pack up everything and to, to leave at night and to go to a foreign place, to a foreign land, to go to Egypt. It's a lot of pain. You know, Lord, can't you just hide Jesus? Can't you just direct the, the, the swordsmen to another place? Can the Lord do that? Yes, he can. But he tells Joseph to go, and so Joseph goes. He doesn't argue. He doesn't deliberate. He goes immediately, by night. But so oftentimes, what do we do? We delay. And why do we delay obeying the Lord? Well, it's oftentimes inconvenient. Have you ever noticed how the Lord, whenever he directs you to do anything, it was never part of your plan? Ever? It's always out of the way. It's always going to cost time. It's, it's always going to push things back. It's always going to mess with your plan. Always. And so we delay obedience because it's inconvenient. We delay obedience because it's costly. Sometimes it costs us to obey the Lord, and so we would rather not pay the price. And so we live in disobedience. Let's be honest, sometimes we delay obedience simply because we're lazy, L-A-Z-Y, lazy. We're too comfortable. We just don't want to put forth the effort. The Lord convicts us, the Lord leads us, the Lord guides us, and we're just kind of fat and soft and lazy, spiritually. Let me say spiritually. Really need to put that on there, spiritually. We're lazy. We haven't developed the, the muscle of immediate obedience. We haven't developed the, the, the spiritual disciplines in our life that we should have developed by now. Paul tells that to the Corinthians. He says, you should be you should be adults by now, ready to handle the meat of the Word of God, but you're still infants. You still need the milk. And so often we have not developed in our spiritual life simply because we're lazy. I want you to know that's not going to fly before the Lord seated on the throne on Judgment Day. Just FYI. Another reason we delay is because we compare ourselves to everybody else. Well, they don't do that, and they don't do that, and they, they, they live this way, and they live that way. So therefore, I can continue to live the way I'm living. Of course, the Bible tells us not to do that. So even the act of doing that's another act of disobedience. There's another reason we delay, because we're concerned with the perception of others. What are they going to think about me? What, what am I going to look like? What, what, what if I put my, if, if I do this, these people are going to think this about me. Listen, we need to be a lot more concerned about what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords thinks, the one who's seated on, seated on the throne thinks, and what everybody else thinks. And so where in your life have you put off obeying 
God's word, obeying the leading of the Holy Spirit? Where has the Holy Spirit been nudging you and convicting you, but you have been ignoring it? You know, last week, Pastor Mark preached a phenomenal message on family worship. And I know many of you were convicted, but have you taken action this week? Have you put something into practice this week? The Lord may be convicting you on personal devotion time with him. Maybe the Lord's been convicting you that that it's time for you to become a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's time for you to become a Christian. It's time for you to put your faith in him. But you've been delaying saying, I'll do it later. I'll, I'll, I'll follow Christ at another time. Maybe the Lord's been convicting you with regards to your giving and supporting the work of God. Maybe about the amount of time you've been spending in prayer. Maybe about serving. Maybe about witnessing to that coworker or that family. Where has the Lord been directing you? Where has the Lord been leading you? Where has the Lord been convicting you that you can look at Joseph and learn from his immediate, immediate obedience? And if we will learn to do that, guess what? God will be leading us all over the place. God will be begin putting assignments in our hearts and assignments in our lives to, to minister to these people and to bless those people and to speak to these people. If we will develop the discipline, the spiritual muscle of immediate obedience. Don't delay. Israel delayed on the way to the promised land. Israel delayed as God wanted to lead them into a land of milk and honey. And their delay cost them 40 years in the wilderness. You don't want that for your spiritual life. Amen. Amen. Let's develop immediate obedience. And then finally today, I want to just encourage you, since I've spanked you enough today. (laughs) I want to encourage you. Three times in this passage, it says that Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. And what this means is that nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing. Nothing is a surprise to God. And so we can put our head on the pillow at night and rest easy, trusting that God has got everything in control. Nothing is a surprise to God. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah 46 says, He's the one who declares the end from the beginning. Nothing is a surprise to God. God knew all of this was happening, all of this was coming, and he says, Joseph, go here. Joseph, go there. He's just directing Joseph. He's doing a better job than Siri here on the phone, telling us where to go. And they never got lost. They never got sidetracked. They were always right where God wanted them because God sees everything. God knows everything. And everything God knows, which is everything, he has always known from all eternity. And what this means is that we can even say praise God for unanswered prayer because God even knows how to protect us from ourselves. Isn't that good news? 
And so we love and serve the God who is sovereign over all things, the one who sees all things, knows all things, declares all things, the one who leads and guides his people by his spirit, the one who is orchestrating not only all of human history to its ultimate conclusion, but the one who is also the author and the perfecter of our faith and of our lives. And we just need to learn to trust him. Amen. And so when he leads us and he guides us and he asks us and he calls us and he convicts us, we need to learn to trust him as the one who directed Joseph, as the one who was leading in the middle of the night. It didn't make sense. Uh, it, it, it was inconvenient. It cost them something. But they had learned to trust in the goodness of God. And we too need to learn to trust in the goodness of God to step out in faith, to act in obedience, and to follow his leading. Amen? I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to take uh, the Lord's Supper together. And as we come to the table today, I just want to lay that question before you again. Where is the Lord leading you? Where has the Lord been convicting you? Where has the Lord been speaking to you? You know, that's one of the, 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 the if, you're, if you're receiving that direction, even that conviction from the Lord, which at times can even be painful, but that's one of the, the reassuring ways that, that the Lord gives us, that we are his children. The Bible says the Lord chastises the, the children that he loves. And so as we come to the table this morning... As we pick up the elements which represent the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we take that and we remember the price that he paid for our sin. Let's leave those things at the altar this morning. Let's leave them, let's lay them down and then, and then pick up the elements and we go back to our seats today. Let's walk in conviction, let's walk in obedience, let's walk in humility, let's walk in submission to the Lord. Let's, let's trust him as he's the one that sees all things. He sees what we cannot see. He, he directs us in ways that we don't understand and that sometimes don't make sense, but we trust in him because we know him. We know that he is good. We know that he loves us. He's shown us his love in the cross, the greatest act of love as Jesus laid down his life to redeem us, as Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it leads us and that it guides us, Lord, that it encourages us and corrects us, Lord, that it, 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 it builds us up, and, Lord, that it, it tweaks us where we need to be tweaked. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to live for you and to live for your glory. Lord, laying aside the sin which clings so closely, laying aside every weight so that we could run with endurance, Lord, that we could run the race you've called us to run. Lord, we don't look to man. We don't look to the left or to the right. Lord, we look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you despised the cross, despising the shame, went to the cross. Lord, we thank you for this act of love. We remember it today as your people as we take of communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.